This is Sports and Torts with David Spada and Elliot Harris on TalkZone.com. Elliot, what do you do? You just go through your Rolodex and look for one beautiful woman after another to bring on each week? Well, we don't have Rolodex anymore, but... Uh, I'm dating myself? Yeah, a little bit, but yeah, that's pretty much the way it works. Where does this girl have time to sleep, Angie? I mean, she- I, I have no idea. She has a full-time job. She does the football. She raises a, a son. I'm I'm impressed. I was asking if he was named after Doctor Oz, but he's I think older than when Doctor Oz came. I think Doctor Oz came a little later or whatever. But I mean, torn meniscus, possible surgery, but she just wants to go out there and play. Yeah. No. I mean, obviously, the lingerie football league is comprised of women who really want to play football. I mean, they happen to be attractive, but at the same time, they're very dedicated, and, you know, they're not doing it for the money. You know, it boggles my mind, all the time and effort that they put in and the quality of football. You know, I went out there the first time, and I thought, okay, this will be like uh, maybe powder puff, or if they're lucky, it'll be like a high-level intramural co-ed league or something. But they're actually very good. Who are their big sponsors, the Laundry Football League? Ah, uh, it's a good question. I meant to ask it. I mean, do they have Playboy on board or something no, like no. Tilted Kilt or Hooters? Or? No, and you would think somebody along that line would be a natural. I'd, I'm not sure about the marketing of the whole league. But I, I know they've expanded greatly uh, to Green Bay, Minnesota, Cleveland, Las Vegas, Toronto. And then I think the plans for the future call for a much grander expansion in Canada where Canada will have almost its own lingerie football league. So you'll have uh, that and I don't know, maybe they'll arrange a game between the Canadian team champion against the uh, American team champion. I don't know how all that's going to play out, but uh, it's interesting and they do get some television exposure on MTV too. And this season, the games will be broadcast live. Last season, it was sort of a Reader's Digest version, a 30-minute game uh, the week after. But uh, it's it's entertaining. You know, it, it's not pure football for the football purist. You know, the, the guy who wants to see uh, the 300-pound lineman or... Don't talk about 300-pounders. I had my softball game last Friday. This time, I went two for two. They hit me a catcher. For three out of this no seven strikeouts eight. this week. No strikeouts. They, how, how much time in the batting cage did you have to spend? I went Wednesday. Were in the was in the batting cage, so I was all ready. So they put me a catcher in the second inning, fourth and sixth. So what ends up happening? Second inning, two outs, played home plate. I'm balls coming from left field. You didn't, tag, you didn't do a Buster Posey because you're still here on two legs. No, tagged the guy out. Again, fourth inning, same guy, comes barreling in at me, tagged him out, dropped the ball with the right hand, grabbed it with the left hand simultaneously and tagged it from behind. And then the sixth inning, I have a 300-pounder coming at me. I'm like, I'm going to get killed. And this guy does a late slide on me, Ooh. tag him out. I'm sitting there going, my knee's killing me. This guy couldn't even get up. But Dick Groats kind of remembers that, probably playing shortstop with the Pirates and Cardinals, people coming in hard into second base. How you doing, Dick? Fine, thank you. Nice to be with you, gentlemen. Nice to talk to you. Dick, I see you played with some great players on these Pirates teams here. I mean, you had Mazarowski, Clemente. I mean, they had to be fun uh, baseball in Pittsburgh back then. Now it seems like they get retreads there. It's not competitive anymore, the Pirates. 
Well, believe it or not, this year they look pretty good. They're getting excellent pitching. They got back to even 500 last night. So I'm kind of impressed, and I think the people in Pittsburgh are right now because they're drawing fantastic crowds. Is it the young players, basically, they want to sit there and win? They're not basically getting the retreads like they did in years past? No, this is a young team. They've got the center fielder, McCutcheon, Tabata in left field, and young Walker, who's a native Pittsburgher, has really played well as a switch hitter. They moved him to second base, and he's done an excellent job. Do you like that new ballpark they have in Pittsburgh? Very much so, yes. It's a beautiful ballpark. The only one I would rather be in might be Wrigley Field. Why? <laughs> I've always loved Wrigley Field. I mean, when you played against the Cubs Wrigley Field, though, I mean, the Cubs didn't draw back in those days. Well, they had pretty good pitching, but we always had a lot of success in Chicago. Besides that, you played all-day games, so you had a chance to get a good dinner, excellent food. Chicago was always one of my favorite times to go into. Day baseball, was was that something that you enjoyed? That's always been a problem with the Cubs, you know, day games, night games, night games, day games. Well, we always enjoyed being in Chicago. It was a great city. You had a chance to get on a normal schedule. You had dinner, great food places in Chicago. It was just a great time to go into. You were teammates of Ralph Kiner. We talked to Ralph Kiner about a month ago. I mean, with the way he started his career here, I mean, it looked like he was going to hit 500 home runs. I mean, if he didn't have those back problems, do you think he would have been probably one of the top five home run hitters of all time? Well, I, I was very fortunate when I was a high school kid. I looked up to Ralph Kiner, and then I signed with the Pirates in 52 and joined him out of college and ended up rooming with Ralph Kiner, and he was one of the nicest people in the whole wide world. And besides being a home run hitter, he was a good hitter. He hit over 300 a number of years. How was he as a roommate? Great. He was just wonderful. Of course, we were all kids making a whole $5,000 a year, which was a Dick, I think we lost, and we'll try to get him back on the phone. I want to go back to making $5,000 a year. Of course, that was when $5,000 was $5,000. It was a lot of money back then. Well, maybe not a lot, but, I mean, certainly not compared to what today's athletes make. But think, if it was a lot of money for working six months a year, though. They had second jobs. They right. Were insurance you, you, you had to have a second salesman. job. Yeah, I mean, uh, I remember... Joe Medwick, a Hall of Fame outfielder for the Cardinals, was an insurance salesman in the offseason and after his baseball career was over, ended up selling insurance. But not a, not a bad existence if you could find a job in the offseason. And sometimes the ball clubs would help you out finding that income to, uh, to bridge the gap. Dick, are you there? I'm back again. Still Sir. making $5,000 a year? That's what the minimum salary was in those days. A, a little less than what, what it is nowadays. You ever look back and say, gee, if I'd come along 50 years later, anything like that? Well, not really, because I don't resent anything the players make today. God bless them. But I will say one thing. I'm very, very pleased that I played during the era. When you think about the number of people we played against, the Mantles, the Maris, the Williams, the Musials, I mean, there was numerous, numerous superstars before the product became so diluted. Now, you think that's a function of expansion? I think that's part of it, yes, because I feel personally that if you 
put all the players in the major leagues in a pool and drafted out 16 teams again, you'd see the quality go right back up. But I just don't believe there are enough major league athletes to fill out 30-some teams. When you say athlete, you were a true athlete. You not only played baseball, you were a basketball player at Duke, played in the pros. Did you have a – was there a reason that you didn't continue to play basketball, that you just basically concentrated on baseball? I didn't have any choice. Mr. Ricky would not allow me to play. I was making more money in the NBA than I was in baseball. And I wanted to go back when I came out of the service, but I still had two years on my bonus contract due me from the Pittsburgh Pirates, and Mr. Ricky would not allow me to go back to the Pistons. And that was my first love. So if you... If he had to do it all over again, he would have said... Well, I, I I don't know. My father had a lot to do with that. He said, you put your name on that contract, son, you're going to live by it. So I didn't have much choice. But really, basketball has always been my first love. So I assume you still follow uh, your Duke basketball through the well, years. I've been broadcasting University of Pittsburgh basketball for 32 years. Hillgrove and I have worked together for 32 years. I'll tell you what, that Pittsburgh team has basically come out of nowhere, and they've been competitive in the NCAAs the last several years. They've been number one seeds. Well, it's a, it's been just great fun ever since Jamie Dixon took over. He's just a marvelous coach, and he is, believe it or not, we've been to the tournament the last 10 years, and it's not a situation where we just barely get there. We've had pretty good seeds. So if Duke's playing Pitt... In the tournament, who are you rooting for? I guess I'd have to root for Pitt because I know all the players. I live and die with the coaches. I really don't know the Duke players other than Coach K and a couple of his staff members. But you, when, you, when you travel with the kids and get to know them, go to practice as much as I do in the winter, I've, I know these kids personally, so I have to root for Pitt. Are they still student athletes or nowadays is it basically they're just athletes and they go to school on the spare time? Well... I, I don't know. That's another thing that Jamie Dixon's done. His kids have all graduated in the last few years. Of course, he hasn't had any one and outs so far, but he had uh, Blair, who left after two years. But basically, he develops winning basketball teams with kids that stay four years. Getting back to, to a little baseball, who was the best player that you played with and the best player you played against? Probably Bobby Clemente was the greatest athlete I ever saw on a baseball diamond. There wasn't anything Bobby couldn't do had he wanted to. And he proved that in the 1971 World Series when he actually put the Pirates on his own shoulders and carried them right to a world championship. And that's a very difficult task to do in baseball. It's one thing if you're a basketball player and uh, you know, you're LeBron James or somebody like that. You're Base, right. Baseball, a far different game to be able to do that. But he was just phenomenal in that 71 series. And, of course, I played with Bobby for seven, eight years. And he was a magnificent outfielder, had a great arm, and it was just fun to watch him hit an in, a tweener. If he hit an extra base hit to watch him make the turn on the bases was beautiful. I'll tell you what, you weren't too bad in 1960 winning the MVP and taking the Pirates to their World Series. Everybody knows their World Series for that Mazeroski home run, but you were the key to that team. Well, I don't know about that. I always felt I accepted that award on behalf of 25 people because that was a very, very, very good baseball team and one that 
really knew how to play the game. Uh, everybody was very good at moving runners, and it was an excellent base running team, and we had fine pitching. Of course, that's what's going on with the Pirates right now. When you, when we were terrible and we were bad growing up, all of a sudden Law and Friend and Haddix became and Face became better pitchers. We automatically became a better ball club. And that's exactly what the Pirates are doing today. Now, how would you compare those 60 Pirates to uh, another World Series winner that you played on, the 1964 St. Louis Cardinals? Boy, they were almost identical type teams. But you have to be lucky, too. If you look back on that 64 team, we didn't have any injuries. We had Kurt Flood with a bad ankle, but you couldn't get him out of the lineup. And Bill White had problems with his shoulder, but he couldn't. He never came out of the lineup. I would imagine of the starting eight players, Timmy McCarver, the catcher, we must have played an average of 155 to 160 games apiece. I know I played 161 games that year. That's Never Elliot. had an injury, but knew how to play the game. Elliot likes that team because he grew up in St. Louis. I grew up watching those Cardinals. I, that I, was fun. In fact, coming down the stretch, the Phillies had the, the pennant pretty well wrapped up. And then we started getting better and better, and the better we became, the worse they became. Finally, the last day of the season, we won the pennant. Was there a point where you said, okay, you know, Philadelphia's lead, there's no way they can blow this? Not really, because as we started to play, I remember we went in and played the Mets, and Bob Skinner, who was on the power team with me, we roomed together. We felt we had to beat the Mets two games, and then we went in to Pittsburgh. We were going to win four out of five, we thought. Well, Galen Sisko pitched a marvelous game and beat us in in Shea Stadium. And we got on the bus, and I'll never forget, Skinner turned to me, and he said, now we need five in Pittsburgh. And we did. We swept the fires five in a row. And the Phillies came into town a game and a half in front and went out a game and a half behind. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. I'm looking at your bio here. You've been on the cover of Sports Illustrated three times. That's correct. Not many athletes get on there one time. Pardon me? Not many athletes get on there one time. You did it three times. Is that your most proud achievement? Uh, one of them, I guess. But winning two World Series is the, probably the, the, the top of my baseball career. That was something special, especially when you beat the New York Yankees. And that was when they had great teams, I'll tell you. Now, you got to play against and you got to play with Bob Gibson. Which was more enjoyable? <laughs> Playing with him. He was one of the great, great, great. In fact, I've always said Sandy Koufax and Bob Gibson were the two greatest pitchers in my era. I got a question. Bill Mazeroski basically gets a lot of criticism saying he does not belong in the Hall of Fame. But I'm looking at your stats here. I think you should be in the Hall of Fame here. You're an eight-time All-Star. You won an MVP, whereas runner-up to Sandy Colfax. Why are you not in? I have no idea, other than the fact that I've always felt that the Hall of Fame is a place for superstars. Bill Mazeroski was the greatest second baseman the game ever seen. He was just magnificent. I played with him for years, and led, we led the league in double plays five times, which I didn't realize 
is still a record along with Ozzy Smith. But he was just something else to watch at second base. Did anybody turn a double play better than Maz? No one. No one. In fact, I remember when, when Banks and, and uh, Baker were playing the same, in Chicago, and then Gene, who's a class gentleman, came to the Pirates, and he said to me one day, I said, you know, I sit and watch you guys make double plays. He said, Ernie and I could never make some of the double plays you guys made. I'll tell you another great second baseman guy, Rookerty of soon, Bobby Doerr. Oh, boy, I guess. With the Red Sox, he sure was. And a, and a gentleman, too. Do you remember watching Bobby Doerr play? Because he's yeah. a little older than you. Yes, but I, I watched him in all-star games and so forth, and then I I got to know him at some of those Cracker Jack old-timers games, and he's a class gentleman. Was he that good of a player? At, I mean, when he was in his 50s and 60s in those all-star games? Uh... I can't answer that. I don't remember whether I played against him or not in his All-Star game. You know what? I miss those All-Star games because I'm 39, but I remember in the early 80s, I mean, we had Cubs season tickets, and you would see the Bob Gibsons come out there and play, and it was fun just seeing them trot out there and stuff, and they basically stopped it in the late 80s. Well, I think one of the things that All-Star games have changed about, and in my opinion anyway, it meant so much more to be elected by your peers when the players voted for you for an all-star game and you got elected in the starting lineup, that was really special because it was your peers. In fact, the year I was traded to St. Louis, it was a great honor for me. I got more votes as a starting shortstop than any other player in either league. But we'll, I see you got a phone call. Dick, we'll let you go. It was a pleasure talking to you. I appreciate being invited on your show. Thank you very much for your time. Thank, Thank you. you. Elliot, I love hearing these stories from these guys about when they played. Yeah. I mean, it takes you back to a time that a lot of people are unfamiliar with. And we're going to talk to a man who takes you back even farther. When we come back, we're going to have our oldest guest in sports and torts history, Hall of Famer Bobby Doerr. Stay tuned.